This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Hitachi. Hitachi commits to helping achieve a sustainable world and people's well-being by utilizing their breadth of digital and green technologies. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Steed Sellers, a senior writer here at the Washington Post. Today we're going to be talking about the future of transportation in America. And we'll have two segments, so please stick around from them both. I'm going to be starting by talking about electric vehicles with Michael Berube, who is the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Sustainable Transportation at the Department of Energy. Michael Berube, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you, Francis. Really uh, an honor to be here today. Well, we're, we're thrilled to have you, of course. And a word to our audience before we begin, you can tweet questions for Michael to at Post Live. That's at Post Live for any Twitter questions. Please send them in. So I'd like to start, Michael, by asking about President Biden's ambitious goal. I think it's 50% sales of electric vehicles by 2030. Are we on track for that? I think we are on track for that. You know, it's always a little dangerous to make uh, forecasts nine, uh, eight years out now. But, mm-hmm. you know, as your uh, piece at the beginning intro said, you know, Europe hit 20% last year and EV sales in the U.S., the, the sales rate doubled in the last six months, um, trending up to 6% here. The number of new models that are coming out uh, are astounding. And that's really important because it will increase the range of the types of vehicles. I mean, just watching all the, uh, you know, whether it was the Super Bowl earlier this year or the other football games, right, the, the hallmark of auto advertising, every ad seemed like it was for a new, uh, a new EV, including pickup trucks, which certainly will be a game changer. Well, you know, I've taken a look around and costs remain high, right, uh, for many of these vehicles. Of course, they'll go down as numbers go up. But what's the government doing to help the process of bringing down the cost of these new vehicles? You know, it, one of the things I, I just got off the phone with people from uh, from J.D. Powers who have an overall affordability index. And when they look at payback, resale value of the vehicle, um, all the factors, they were actually saying that, the affordability index is only like four or five percent higher on the EV right now than the um, than the conventional gas vehicle. Now that said, um, we actually anticipate that by the time we get to that 2030 date, you will actually have the EVs, the full cost of the EV, both the upfront and the operating cost, will actually be a savings for people, which is just um, you know, and that's before, quite honestly, gas prices were at the level they are, are today. So I think that is uh, a tremendous uh, accomplishment for us to get there. We are driving battery costs down with new battery technologies, but also all the other parts of the vehicle itself, um, improving durability and the length of the batteries, which also helps with the resale value. I mean, today we're seeing that um, people are all worried about, will my battery last for the life of the car? That really has not been a problem at all so far. So uh, we're, we're pretty Just bullish. Clarify that for me. The upfront cost, you say, is going to be competitive. I think the um, upfront cost will be very close to competitive. And when you take into account the lower operating cost, uh, even today, it's $6,000 lower maintenance and repair cost on top of the lower actual fuel price cost as well. Mm-hmm. So there might be a little bit of trade off in there between, uh, between that upfront and then the ongoing operating cost. You know, and, and when you think about resale value um, of the vehicle, the resale value of a vehicle is a lot based upon its ongoing operating and maintenance cost for a used car. Well, an electric vehicle is going to have the lowest ongoing maintenance and operating cost from a technology perspective. So that should make 
you know, the resale value really valuable for these cars, which will help people in the used car market as well. So talk to me a little bit about last year's infrastructure bill and what it has done to help with this process. Well, last year's infrastructure bill um, truly was game changing in so, so many ways. Yeah. On the electrification front, probably the biggest, uh, the biggest single item is $7.5 billion towards the EV charging infrastructure build out. The Department of Transportation, Department of Energy are working very hard uh, on that with all of the different states and territories um, for that EV charging network. So I think that will provide a lot of confidence for people when they see the growing EV charging network. But it really goes beyond that. There's tremendous funds in the bill for battery supply chain, helping to develop a domestic battery industry, uh, developing the processing of the materials here in the U.S. Um, that will help with uh, stability and with cost long term as well. There is a significant amount of work on electrifying school buses and transit buses, which will help certainly um, reduce emissions in those sectors, but also increases the exposure of people to the technology, increases the demand for domestic batteries. Uh, and in some ways, that's like the tip there. Those are the really big marquee programs, but there's more on top of that that will help, uh, that will help in other parts of electrification. So I want to ask a little bit about miles per gallon. I think there's a target um, by 2026 of 55 miles per gallon for, for light trucks and cars and automakers are struggling with that. What's the federal government going to do to help with that process? Well, I think, as you said, there's uh, recently uh, out of uh, EPA and NDOT, the new updated fuel economy standards. Um, really, when you, you know, I, I worked many years in the automotive industry. When you look now, 2022, 2025, those products are largely um, those those are designed and, and being built, and uh, I think those standards were set with that well in mind, understanding where the industry's at. I think a lot of what we're really focused on is what happens after that. How do you, when you get to that 50% of vehicles being electrified by 2030, that becomes, uh, it's just a whole different game, right? You're really now talking about moving away completely from that, um, that fossil fuel-based uh, new vehicle market. So you spoke earlier about in Europe, I think 20% of sales already being uh, electric vehicles. Why were U.S. automakers so late to the game? You know, I, I think, um, as I, I worked in uh, global auto industry for a, a European North American manufacturer, I think we're literally talking a matter of one year difference here. Um, the U.S. was actually quite quite a bit ahead on uh, EVs and thinking about EVs and its deployment. And then, if you remember, uh, Dieselgate and all the issues around diesel that happened, well, Europe had a very heavy focus on diesels for their greenhouse gas and fuel economy. So when that got pulled out from under them, it was an immediate crisis and a very quick switch over to say we have to move to electric. Whereas I think on the uh, the U.S. side, that that is is going to be happening is just a little bit off. Well, we can't go to EVs without enough charging stations. How are we going about that? And is there a specific ratio for the number of charging stations per cars to make this all work? You know, I don't think there is a, uh, there isn't an exact type of ratio. I think there's um, two big things that we have to do. Even though most driving is done locally, uh, only about 10% of miles driven really are these long distance trips. People need to feel confident that they'll have chargers. So one of the first things that we're doing under the infrastructure bill is building out the corridors across the country. Make sure that the typical person who says, hey, I'm going two, 300 miles, right? That'd be a typical long distance trip today, um, that they are confident that they can get charging. So through the infrastructure bill, the plan is to cover every corridor, every interstate and every major highway after that with sufficient charging. I think that gives people the confidence for the longer distance trips. Then 
we have to make sure that people have charging where they live. Uh, for people that park their car at their home in a garage, that's not that complicated. And we know from all the data and the studies that about 80% of all charging and electrons will actually want to happen at home. That's when it's the most convenient for a person. And it's also when it's the cheapest. But one of the things we have to think about is what about those people that don't have charging where, or don't park their car in a house? They live in a multi-unit dwelling or apartment building. Um, that can be true in across a, a lot of different cities. So we're really focused on how do we develop new models for that? What's the best way to provide people um, charging there and to do it affordably? Because we want to make sure that we have an equitable transition. As we start moving to more and more EVs, we want to make sure that all communities can benefit from that, uh, not just the better off or wealthy. Yeah. But what about the length of time for these charges? If you are on a long distance trip and you need to charge, I know how long it takes me to fill my gas tank. Uh, I've, I've had a different experience sometimes with electronic vehicles. Can that be sped up? Oh, it, it can and it has been dramatically. The battery technology that exists today, which is going to get improved and improved several times over the next uh, seven or eight years, is already pretty fast. We're talking about 150 kilowatts to 350 kilowatts of power. So the bottom line is our goal is to be able to fill up your vehicle um, in 15 minutes. And you know, there's a lot of data industry has done to look at what time is acceptable to people, how long do they really spend when they stop. And I think that's a, a golden time frame, And that's really to fill it up. A lot of times you may say, well, I, I don't need to fill it up completely. Um, you know, I'll, I'll I'll, I'll only put in half of you know half of my uh, vehicle's charging load will get me to where I want, and I can plug in overnight there where it's lower cost. So um, we think that the charging time, the technology will solve that. And that won't be the barrier. So you mentioned equity, but how about political opposition? Um, are there are the states that resist the notion of putting in uh, charging stations or transferring to electric vehicles from traditional forms of power? You know, I, I haven't really seen that. I think at the end of the day, when I think about the transition to a clean energy future and in transportation, right? We have to make sure that the solutions work. They work for all Americans, but they gotta work for people. They gotta like, as you said, they gotta charge up fast enough and they have to be affordable. I don't think anyone will be opposed to the idea of a way to get people to work to their jobs if they can do it at a lower price than they, they do today, right? That's key. And um, that's where some of the technology improvements really have have led us. Uh, and it also provides a diversification of uh, of energy sources uh, as well. And then, you know, we have to remember that as the electrical grid is also getting lower and lower greenhouse gas emissions and over time it will continue to improve. Your electric car just continues to get better over its life. Right? A typical gasoline vehicle over its life actually gets gets dirtier as the engine degrades. But an electric vehicle, as electric power plants and uh, clean up and renewable energy grows, then the electric vehicle actually gets cleaner over its life. So there's, there's not really a lot to uh, be opposed to. Hey, Michael, we're beginning to hear from people in the audience. And I have a question here from Matt Fenton that I'd like to read to you. Matt says, when will full EV charging be less than 10 minutes, which is needed for equality with gasoline vehicles? You know, uh, I'll take the liberty of saying, um, at about 10 minutes versus uh, versus the less than 10 minutes. Um, I think that when we get to around, we look at the technology pathways, the technology in the, the last part of this decade, call it 2028, 20, five, six years from now, you'll be approaching exactly that level around 10 minutes. Um, now it will depend a little bit on the range of the vehicle. I just saw one OEM say they're gonna start uh, targeting at least one of their models with a 500 mile range. Um, a lot of people will, um, 
I think actually buy vehicles at more than 300, 350, and that, of course, will influence how long it takes you to charge it up. So I wanted to ask you about batteries, which you've mentioned, of course, but um, we seem to be in sort of a new gold rush, a, a lithium rush in some ways, and much of it is in China. What's the U.S. doing to win this global battery arms race? Yeah, we are working very aggressively. The Department of Energy uh, has announced over $7 billion actually in funding to help develop domestic both the cells, but also, as you said, the critical minerals and materials inside of those cells that make up the batteries. Um, there are domestic sources of lithium. Um, and I think, you know, like a lot of things, when the when there's an increase in demand, right, people get innovative and creative and come up with new technologies to, to find those and uh, to refine them literally and process them. And we are starting to see that. There's a lot of activity you're hearing about out in California in the Salton Sea, which has a tremendous amount of lithium inside. Uh, and we know it's there. It's a matter now developing the economic processes to get it out. But you've seen several you know, billion dollar plus investments announced in that vein. Um, and I think you're going to see more across all the different parts of the of the supply chain. And, and I will also say, um, you know, working with other countries that are uh, that have other minerals of interest. There are a number of, uh, of countries that have different parts of the battery supply chain. And the United States is working very, very closely across those different countries. We've got another great question coming in from our audience. So let me turn to another one of those. This is from James Stockmal. And he says, what is the plan to handle old EV batteries? Great Excellent question. question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> perfect. Um, really, the, the answer there is that's where a number of those critical minerals are going to come. We are doing a lot of work right now on how do you recycle those old EV batteries as well as all those consumer electronic batteries to extract those minerals. We think that in the future, up to 40% of the, uh, the raw material that we need for batteries will actually come from those recycled batteries. And that really helps improve the economics because when that battery is, is done its life in the vehicle, the actual material itself has already been processed. You've taken some maybe some material from raw ore to a processed form. If you can extract that, you save all the costs of having to reprocess virgin material. So um, we think there's going to be a very, very robust battery recycling industry. Uh, you're already starting to see a lot of activity there, new companies forming. Um, there is, uh, I think, technology that we can improve upon there to make it more economical, higher volume, uh, and that will also help quite a bit. So these new vehicles are only obviously as environmentally friendly as the electricity we use to, to uh, power them. Um, where does the U.S. stand with that? Can you give me a little bit of a sense of where the electricity is coming from and the future of it? Yeah, definitely. Um, we're actually about to publish an update to uh, a big study that we do with the automotive industry, with the energy companies and the utilities that looks at the full life cycle emissions of all different technologies. Uh, and uh, it, will, it shows that you know, today, even at the current power mix, that the typical electric vehicle is definitely uh, has lower greenhouse gas emissions than its comparable gasoline vehicle. And of course, we have a goal in the United States to have 100% of our electric grid from clean electricity by 2035. Um, achieving that goal, of course, then will directly translate to you know, very, very low emissions from an electric vehicle. And of course, you know, whether we hit that 100% exactly in 2035 or get very close to it, um, as we're improving and we are seeing those renewables grow dramatically, um, significant you know, announcements out of Washington in the last day or two on solar, of course, will help again accelerate that. That will make 
typical EV even cleaner. So actually, go, but this was yesterday, President Biden, I think, announced a 24-month tariff exemption for solar panels from um, Southeast Asian countries. Tell us the significance of that and why it's taken so long. You know, I, I, I'm not the, uh, the expert on the solar side, so I can't go that deep. But what I will tell you from a significance is as we increase the solar penetration and wind uh, in the United States and in other forms of renewable, that significantly cleans up the grid which helps with all types of technology, I mean, electric vehicles that we're talking about. But as uh, many in the audience have probably heard, there's a lot of work going on in hydrogen, uh, hydrogen made from electricity, and you want that electricity to be, be from renewables. Also, uh, electrification in industrial sources. So there's a, a lot of aspects of achieving a net zero greenhouse gas across the economy that really rely upon moving to very high levels of renewables across the electric grid. So I think the announcements yesterday will, will help move us in that direction. So I have a very short last question. I'm sorry, <laughs> we're running out of time. But I wanted to ask you, we're going to be talk to, talking to a private investor, obviously, later. Uh, what's the role of public-private partnerships or private business in moving ahead towards a cleaner future for transportation? You know, it cannot be understated. I think it is, uh, it's, it's dead on right that you have that conversation coming. You know, even though the infrastructure bill is historic in terms of investment on the public side, it still is not going to be nearly as big as the total amount of private sector dollars over the coming decades that are going to go into green energy. I think a large part of what we can do in the federal government, right, is to be that incubator, to set clear direction, to um, help launch some of these industries and help provide confidence that this is the way of the future. And that helps unlock the private sector capital uh, globally, quite honestly, uh, for investments, whether that be in electrification or in hydrogen or sustainable aviation fuels, which we haven't talked about in order to uh, decarbonize aviation. So I think the public-private partnerships will be key. Um, we at DOE have a tremendous amount of work we do with the private sector, recognizing that, you know, the government can sometimes bring the technology, the national lab, some of that early funding. But at the end of the day, the private sector really is the one who launches the businesses and that will have to make some of the really, really big investments down the road. And, and quite honestly, um, there's opportunity there, right? Those investments are being made because there's economic opportunity. And that also leads to jobs here in the U.S., which is uh, another critical, critical aspect of the government's role, right, is to help develop that industry so we can get those jobs here in the U.S. We'll be following all those trends closely. Michael Berube, thank you so much for joining us at Washington Post Live. Thank you so much. Have a great day. I'll be back in a few moments with the next segment when I'll be speaking with Wes Edens. Please stick around. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us. My name is Hisham Abdesamad. I'm the chairman and CEO of Hitachi America. I am uh, pleased to be joined by my esteemed colleague, Andy Barr. He's the global CEO of Hitachi Rail. Uh, today's discussion will be around sustainable transportation, specifically focused on railway. Before we get started, um, I'd like to tell you a little bit about Hitachi. We're a global technology and industrial company uh, founded in, in 1910. We have over 300,000 employees around the world, $84 billion in revenues, and we operate in a number of different sectors, including industrial manufacturing, energy, healthcare, um, digital and IT, which is a big part of what we're doing, and of course, transportation and mobility, which is a topic of today's discussion. Our vision is very simple. We call it social innovation. 
which means using innovation to solve big problems in society, focusing primarily on sustainability and quality of life. Uh, Andy, thanks for joining us. Hi there, good to be here. Thank you. Great. So the first question is is simply, uh, obviously, you've been in the industry for such a long time. If you just kind of uh, paint a picture of, of how the railway business has evolved over the last 10 years um, as an industry, but also specifically how Hitachi has evolved in its railway business over the last 10 years. So Hitachi Rail uh, has been established uh, for 15 years outside of Japan, and we're now in over 30 countries and we have 14,000 people globally. So we're a, a key part of the rail industry. Uh, in Itachi, we, our origins go back to 1920s when we built uh, steam trains. And then more recently, we built the famous bullet train. And that started running in 1964 for the Olympics. But now we're a key part of the rail industry. And in recent times, our growth outside of Japan has focused very much on new business. And in, for North America, it's a really key part of our business because we are now delivering train control systems into Alaska, driverless rail metro in Hawaii and in Baltimore. And also we're building a new manufacturing plant uh, in Maryland. So already we're a key part of the industry and we're looking forward into the future to being a major part of the US business and to help expanding that network and to create new sustainable journeys for people into the future. Great. Just to unpack that a little more, um, especially in North America and the U.S. So, so the Biden administration has signaled a large focus on sustainability and also modernizing uh, the country's infrastructure. And railway is a big part of it. Um, can you just talk a little bit about uh, the investments that Hitachi has made in North America and how we're going to play? Uh, what role will Hitachi Rail play in sort of modernizing um, uh, the U.S.'s railway infrastructure? Well, I think it's a really exciting time to be part of this industry in North America because of the investments going in and also the move towards expanding existing systems and new ones. We have been successful in a, in a project to build uh, 256 new rail cars, uh, and that's going to serve DC and Maryland. And to support that, we're building a $70 million factory near to the capital in Maryland. And this factory will be a key part of the growth uh, employing 460 people directly and over 1300 people in the supply chain and alongside that we've got local businesses a key part of the construction in san francisco we're modernizing the the city's uh, bay area system providing new digitally controlled systems uh, to make sure that modernization work and also to increase capacity by over 40 percent so right now we're a key part of this industry and we're looking forward to growing that technology and developing it into the future in other cities around the US. That's great. And, and, and just to add to that, um, you know, Hitachi overall has pledged uh, to achieve carbon neutrality um, by 2030 across our, our value chain and then by 2050 um, within, within externally. And, and that's, that's a major commitment. And, you know, we believe that success in the next decade will, will depend on digitalization. Um, so there's this natural conversions between digital and all the industries of manufacturing, transportation, um, and it's it's an important part of of our our mission moving forward. And I know that you've touched on driverless trains and autonomous 
there's a lot of digital technology and innovation and a lot of data analytics and automation that takes in that that's part of that and and hitachi is very focused on digital transformation as a way to um, help to transition to sustainability but also to optimize a lot of the assets that we have uh, to make them uh, reliable safe and also uh, uh, smart um, if I want to ask you, I'd like to ask you a question more on the future of railway transportation, the future of, you know, in the next 10 years, obviously we see rail as, as a carbon free emission way of moving from point A to point B and moving assets and people. Uh, what do you see the future of railway, especially in the United States? Um, how do you see it uh, uh, kind of evolve um, from your experience and point of view? Well, I think into the future, there's many ways that we're going to contribute. We're lucky that rail already is a sustainable means of transport and expanding that network will be really important for that. For our passengers, I think they'll get a much more sustainable journey that's that's controlled in a better way so that they can have more choice uh, to enable them to move away from their own transportation onto public transport. For our customers, Expanding that digital technology to be able to use our experience from elsewhere around the world means they get the best access to that for the future. And for the broader economy, I think people moving people into cities more efficiently can only be a benefit. And to actually grow that sustainable footprint into the future means that there are a huge amount of new benefits that can be gained from this. So for the US, the benefit in both passenger and freight means more people get access to sustainable transport and we can control that ever more digitally into the future. That's fantastic, and it's it's truly as exciting, and and I'm excited that Hitachi will play a big part of, of of that future. So thanks again for your time, and I'll hand it back to the Washington Post. Thanks, Pete. Thank you. And now back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back to Washington Post Live. For those of you just joining us, I'm Francis Steed Sellers, a senior writer here at the Post. We're continuing our talk about the future of transportation. And I am delighted to welcome Wes Edens, who is the founder and co-CEO of the Fortress Investment Group. He is the chair of Brightline. And for those of you who are basketball fans out there, he's also a co-owner of the Milwaukee Bucks, which sounds like a lot of fun. Wes Edens, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. And again, to our audience, don't forget to tweet questions to us. That's at Post Live. Tweet questions to at Post Live and we'll pick up some of them and ask Wes about them. Wes, to start with, I just wanted to ask about Brightline. Tell us what the company does. Uh, the, it's, a, it's the first uh, privately uh, financed and built uh, passenger train in this country in the last 100 plus years. So uh, we right now so have- Say that again, the first? First uh, privately financed passenger train in the United States, I think since 1894, since Henry Flagler's train in Florida. Wow. So. And uh, so right now we have uh, operations from Miami to uh, West Palm Beach. Uh, the rail line is under construction to be completed by the end of the year um, to go to Orlando. Um, we have a second train, which we're in the final stages of permitting uh, from Las Vegas to Los Angeles. So lots of activity in the, uh, in the private railway space for us. A lot for you, but we don't hear an awful lot about private companies coming into this area. What drew you <clears throat> to... I'm sorry, what was the... We don't hear a lot about private companies coming into this space. What drew you to it? Um, it really all started, I read a book. I mean, I read the book uh, on the history of uh, Henry Flagler in Florida called The uh, Last Train to Paradise. And uh, we, we have been investors in transportation assets, infrastructure assets for a long time. And so um, 
uh, at the time we owned the Florida East Coast Railway, which is a very famous uh, freight railway. Um, obviously, it runs from Jacksonville down to Miami. It used to go all the way to uh, what, uh, uh, Key West. And about eight years ago, I read the book about the founding of that railway and the work that Henry Flagler had done. And you know, I'm a, a big fan of uh, private uh, uh, passenger railway in Europe and uh, read the book. And we looked at all the pieces and we thought, uh, why not take a real, real stab at it? And eight years later, here we are, just on the on the edge of being completed. So I understand that you and your team did look overseas. You talked about Europe just now. What did you learn about high-speed transportation and trains from other countries? And you can also talk about Japan, of course, which is such a leader. Yeah, I mean, it's been very, you know, the, the business model is one that is proven around the world. So uh, we sent teams out. I personally went and visited many of the different train systems in Europe as well as in Asia. Um, what you find, of course, is that it's the preferred means of transportation. And, and in particular, the, uh, the, the space that occupies the too uh, far to drive, too short to fly, these city pairs. So think, uh, you know, Paris, London, uh, Paris, Lyon, Madrid, uh, Seville, you know, Rome, Milan. Those are extremely uh, competitive uh, um, markets for train. They compete very well with both, both uh, airline traffic as well as uh, passengers. And we knew that, that we had city pairs that looked just like that with the same kind of characteristics here in the United States that we thought would be very successful. We, we picked what we thought was the first one, the most obvious one, given our position in Florida. So we went from Miami to Orlando. So one of the most popular cities in the United States to visit internationally, Miami, to one of the biggest uh, visitation centers in the world, which is Orlando. So that's an obvious place to start. Uh, Los Angeles to Las Vegas, also very compelling. But there's many others in the United States, you know, Dallas, Houston, Austin, Dallas, uh, you know, Charlotte uh, to uh, to Atlanta, et cetera, et cetera. So you have to begin with one before you can do others. But there's it's clear that the business model worked among these different different places. I just can't, I can't so. resist asking you just a little bit of history there. This country was built on the steam train. Um, you go to Flagler's mansion in Palm Beach. It's enormous. It made an awful lot of money for people. What happened to develop the romance with the the vehicle, the car? I think we're the victims of our own success in this country in the interstate highway system. I think actually we made interstate travel by car uh, so easy. Uh, it was so inexpensive, relatively speaking. Gas was 30 cents a gallon, whatever. Cars were plentiful and cheap, and we were very successful with it. And ironically, when you look at it, in the United States, we have the best freight, pass uh, freight uh, travel system in the world, and we transport uh, poor people by, uh, by car. So it's, it's literally the polar opposite of what you find in Europe, where the freight goes on 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 uh, by trucks and the people go on rails. But I think that uh, there's a lot of room to, to mesh those two, and 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 our first train we think is a good example of that. So is there something specifically now that's making America lag in picking up on this and 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 making the sort of transition that you're talking about? Um, I think that there's a confluence of factors. I mean, obviously. Uh, you know, climate change is at the top of everyone's agenda. I think that uh, you know, cleaner, safer ways of transport is a is a is a big issue. You know, California, for example, 50% of all the emissions in California come by way of their transportation system. So there's a massive impact that you can have on the environment by um, moving people around by rail. It's also much safer, and then not to be forgotten, it's better. It's more fun. It's more enjoyable. It's a way for you to uh, to be productive while you travel. So I think it's got a lot of the checks in the right column, and, and we think it's going to be very successful here. So talk about Brightline a little bit more. What would you say the biggest challenges are to growth at this point for a company like yours? 
You know, there's been a lot of lessons. It's a great question because there's a lot of lessons we've learned from it. And I think uh, the, the one at the top of the list would be using existing uh, transportation corridors is probably the easiest way to really proliferate these railways. So uh, in Florida, what we've done is really a combination of that. So we, we go up the Florida East Coast Railway line from Miami to Cocoa Beach. We then turn left and go uh, next to Route 528 to the Orlando Airport. So we do, we both use existing rail infrastructure and we develop new. Um, in Las Vegas, Los Angeles, we do um, solely uh, in the middle or in the median of I-15. So it goes all the way from, you know, uh, from Las Vegas to, to Rancho Cucamonga. I think in hindsight, that's, that's the preferred way of doing it. I think it's cheaper to do it that way. I think you can make the, uh, the rail system more secure because you can build a fence around it in the median and keep you know, cars and people and animals away from it. So that's probably the right way to do it. But, but certainly existing transportation corridors is the right thing. But the, the biggest challenge that we have in rail infrastructure development, in my opinion, in this country, is the permitting process. Uh, the permitting process is one that takes too long, costs too much money, is too cumbersome. I have lots of thoughts about how we can make it more streamlined. But you know, just to give an example, the actual project that is uh, on, the, on the precipice of getting permitted in, from Vegas to LA started actually 15 years ago. Uh, we got involved in it about three and a half years ago. The total cost, the hard dollar cost, by the time we get our permits and are ready to start construction, will be about $550 million. So over half a billion dollars in cash outlay to get to the starting gate just makes it too hard. And, and, and we're fortunate enough to, to be there, but I think if you want to see this happen in a lot of other places, as I do, we have to make it a little bit easier for people to, uh, to access it. So tell me a little bit more about what those permits are for and how you actually go about getting them. Is this state permitting or? Um, yeah, it's basically you, you, the, the most critical uh, um, agreement you need is the right-of-way. So you need to have the contiguous right-of-way to get from point A to point B. Uh, I-15 is a big interstate highway, so just simply utilizing that transportation corridor, largely going down the middle right in, in between the two lanes of traffic, is the way we get there. So we got uh, right-of-ways from the state of Nevada, right-of-ways from the state of California, right-of-ways from uh, the city of Rancho Cucamonga for the last, in San Bernardino for the last mile. So the right-of-ways are our first part of it. Then the, the permits that you need are construction permits, obviously, to, be, to actually build it and put it in place. But you also need the environmental permits. And that's, that, that's, uh, th that, that permit is the last one to, to come and, and the most challenging to get. But there's so many benefits environmentally of this versus the millions of cars that you're taking off the road that it's a sensible thing to get. It just takes a long time. So talk to me a little bit more about some of the benefits. I mean, obviously the pleasure you've mentioned of being able to do your work and being on a train, it's more fun. But these are very specific trips you're talking about between certain cities. What are, do you see business people going back and forth, tourists? What's the, what's the big pro here? I think it's both. I think when you look at these city pairs, you know, if you go from uh, the Eurostar, which is a, a very successful line uh, from your accent, I, I suspect you may have been on it at some point or another. <laughs> I've been on it, yes. Uh, Yes, exactly. So um, you have both a mix of both business and, and individuals, just like you do on airlines, right? So it's a, and, and it's very affordable. Our, our estimate of revenues for point A to point B on these things is roundly $100, right? Plus or minus. Obviously, there's premium travel and there's budget travel and there's different times of day, but that's a, a good metric to kind of uh, to hone in on. And, uh, you know, when you look at the you know, Vegas, LA is the most compelling. There's 50 million people that make that trip. It's the most deadly highway in America, literally. Uh, there's yeah. hundreds of people that, that uh, are killed on it annually, right? So it's a very, very, uh, very, very challenging highway. 
Um, there's not a lot of places to stop. So there's no real reason to compete for other modes of transportation. And you, know, you can get there faster, cheaper, and, and, and much more sensibly. So it's a, it's a very compelling value um, proposition. So I have been on the Eurostar. I've also spent a lot of time on the Northeast Corridor. And um, very little of the time do the trains, even working along that tra track, reach the speeds they could. Why is that? And is that something you see improving through private investment? Or is that just an entirely different animal? Absolutely. I mean, and so we're, we're, we have two different uh, forms of it. In, uh, in Florida, we're using existing rail infrastructure. So you can't electrify it. So you can't build the catenary for your train that then can't service the others that the other freight trains that are on. That's why I say it, it creates more challenging when you use existing rail infrastructure. Your limitation on speed, there's about 125 miles an hour. Um, what I would say is that when you talk about using the trains in Europe, if you're going to go from you know, Zermatt to Zurich, uh, nobody really asks you how fast you're going you're to go there. They want to know how long it takes. And that's the, the, the so a three hour trip is uh, a, a very compelling trip versus other forms of transportation. And that's what we really focus on in these city fairs. When you look at the Las Vegas to Los Angeles line, because it's a virgin track, we're building it literally from scratch, we can build it in a very controlled environment. It has its own electrical system. We expect it to be uh, run on um, largely, if not exclusively, renewable power. So it's the greenest train line quite possibly in the world. And there you can reach proper high-speed trains. So it'll be the first high-speed train in America, um, top speeds of you know, 200 miles an hour, total travel time from Las Vegas to, to Rancho Cucamonga, where it connects into the LA metro system about two hours and 15 minutes. So, um, so it depends, but, but you know, the limitations of the Northeast lines are using existing infrastructure and that limits their ability to do certain things you know, mechanically that we don't have those same issues when you start from scratch. Right. So dream big a little bit for me. Where do you see high-speed rail in the, in the real future of American transportation? And you have Brightline up and running, who are your competitors going to be? Uh, you know, I think that uh, I think there will be plenty of competition. You know, I think that proof of concept is a very, very powerful tool. And so you're going to have the train running in Orlando, you know, hopefully by Christmas time, the train in Las Vegas, hopefully in construction then and up and running three years later. So I think um, I think and I hope that we will have lots of competition because it'll mean that actually we're being successful ourselves and that, and that other people are coming into the market. The U.S. is quite possibly the most single attractive um, rail market in the world that doesn't really have much of a rail market other than the Northeast Corridor today. So, you know, given the dimensions of the country, the economic prosperity, it's a very compelling uh, um, opportunity for folks. And so, I think we'll see a lot of a lot of people come in that will be competing with it. And and I hope we'll see you know railway to all these different city pairs that I mentioned. We 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 uh, estimate there's about 20 pairs. So as I said, it's the uh, uh, the ones in Texas are obviously very compelling. So Houston, Dallas, uh, Austin, Austin, uh, uh, Dallas, et cetera. Um, Charlotte to uh, to Atlanta, St. Louis to Chicago, Portland to Seattle. There's a there's a number of city pairs that we think are really compelling. And I think with all things, once you get proof of concept, you show what the revenues are. That should make it more and more competitive to even go to more markets. So I I really do believe this is the first of many of these systems you'll see developed in the next 10 to 20 years. So we just talked to uh, Michael Berube about um, the government's role. Where do you see it? Well, you know, the government can play an enormous role. And I, and I think I'm very grateful for um, the infrastructure bill that was passed. And I think it's actually very, very uh, um, responsive to this. If you think about it, there's a couple of different models. There's the, um, there's the Amtrak model, which is the government-owned model. Um, they have a hard mandate in that they have to be all things to all people. So 
They're very successful in the Northeast Corridor, but they have to take trains in a lot of the parts of the country. So that may, that's a more difficult mandate for them to, uh, to accomplish. And then there's the state model, which you see in the California high-speed rail. Um, based on our experiences and what we've learned in the last eight years, I think they'd be well served to look at existing rail corridors for a portion of that, because I think they could build it faster and cheaper than they're doing. And to give, it a, give it some context to it, we estimate that the, uh, the California high-speed rail costs about $200 million a mile. Our um, Vegas LA is about $35 million a mile. So you can definitely do it uh, cheaper, we think, and have great results uh, you know, for that. So, um, you know, but the government, you know, with, with the grants programs, we think will actually will be very helpful. I think that on the permitting side is where perhaps the government could have the greatest impact. And something I've talked to a number of governors about is simply the notion of going out and creating your own right-of-ways and getting your permits and then auctioning off to people like us to come in and build your train for you. And I think that'd be, you know, the government has got real, really uh, obviously superpowers when it comes to permitting things and getting things entitled and ready to go. And if they took that upon themselves, I think that that's a that's an idea that could have a lot of merit in terms of really helping out the development of this stuff. Because, you know, the only commodity you can't buy is time and it takes a lot of time to build these things. And that's what really kills a lot of these projects. So I think if we can shorten that time, I think you'll see a lot more success. Wes, I want to turn to a question from Twitter. It's from Bob O'Malley. And I mentioned the Milwaukee Bucks, your basketball interest. This is about Aston Villa, the soccer team in London. So let's hear from Bob. It says, to celebrate Brightline's expansion to Orlando, do you have any plans to have Aston Villa Football Club come to Florida to play? I would love to come play in Orlando <laughs> City. We take a summer tour. This, this year, our summer tour is headed to Australia. So we play a couple of local Australian teams and we play Leeds and we play uh, United, uh, Manchester United over there. But I think coming back to the U.S. next year is what we need to do. So I'm, I'm obviously a big, big football fan. Orlando has done a great job with their, their, uh, their, their program down there. So we'd love to come play there. When they were, oh, and will they be traveling by train when they do so? <laughs> I think that I think that the uh, the train connection between Miami and Orlando for the rivalry of those two clubs is going to be wonderful for them. So I think the uh, rather than the, the march to the match, they'll get to take the train to the match. So we're we're excited to be hosts of that. Well, Wes, thank you so much for all those interesting insights and also for your sporting insights. And thank you for joining Washington Post Live. Thank you very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.